It is Wednesday, February 7th, 2018, and this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. On this week's show, Ben Wickler. He is the Washington Director for MoveOn.org, and he joins us to talk about mobilization and about the 2018 election. The election this year is the most important lever we have to pull to save our democracy and to you know protect the communities that are under attack and avert the kind of real like historic catastrophes that could very well happen under Trump. Then we talk with Summer Stinson, president of the education nonprofit Washington's Paramount Duty, about the coming property tax bill and about some other ways her organization advocates funding state education, including cutting corporate tax breaks. Some corporations pay a very minimal tax rate in our state. And yet these are the same corporations that are demanding better workers, more educated public so that they can hire from Washington residents. All that and we'll have our weekly dose of good news. My guest, Ben Wickler, is the Washington director at MoveOn.org, an organization that has been behind some of the biggest progressive grassroots movements since its founding in 1998, and it boasts some 8 million members. Ben Wickler, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. So I do want to talk about your work with MoveOn in detail, uh, but before we do, I you know, I move to ask, um, you've been doing activism since your undergrad days at Harvard, uh, where you started the Student Global AIDS Campaign. You worked on congressional campaigns. You have produced and hosted radio shows and podcasts. You've helped to write a bestseller. You've written for The Onion. You were the press secretary for Sherrod Brown during his Senate campaign, and you were only... Um, well, actually, you're going to be uh, you're going to be 37 by the time this airs. So, a uh, happy early birthday! Thank you. Uh, but you know, I'm left to wonder: Has there been a master plan to everything that you've done <laughs> and accomplished? Do you just follow your interests? What what guides you? Uh, so. Uh, I have one amendment to to what you just described. I actually started doing activism um, when I was a, a kid. Oh, so now uh, you're really and... making us feel bad. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but it's but I I mentioned that just to say, um, I I found really like in middle school and high school that I just loved being involved in fights for things that I believed in. Mm-hmm. And I was lucky enough to have a kind of community of people that were game to throw themselves into battles and to have a chance to be part of things that won and that made a difference. So like my, my freshman year of high school, we um, found out that our school board had made a deal with Coca-Cola to market Cokes to students in the school, like giving teachers coupons to hand out to students who did a good job in class. And we thought that that was ridiculous and organized a campaign that had students, you know, speak at school board meetings, bring signs and all this stuff. And our school board canceled the contract. And then we created a citywide campaign to get a student seat on the school board and then a statewide campaign for school funding. And each of these experiences was just a blast. And I think for me, I have very low willpower to resist the lure of an opportunity to be involved in some kind of, um, righteous struggle. Like I I find that to be the most rewarding uh, thing that I can do. It's what kept me away from my homework in college. And (laughs) it's what's kind of kept me away from graduate school after college is that I I keep, you know, hearing about things that sound like really exciting fights and, and getting involved in them. Well, yeah, and you're kind of in the thick of it now with with Move On. Um, so let's let's talk about Move On. So there are two essential pillars to what Move On does. There is Move On Civic Actions, which primarily focuses on petitions, uh, and then there is Move On Political Action, which is concerned with helping to elect candidates. How do you shape what gets focused on? So I'm the Washington director at Move On, and what that means in practice is that I interface with 
elected DC with the press, with a lot of our coalition allies and partners, um, and you know, with a kind of political world of Washington. Um, and that's both on the electoral side and on the kind of issue advocacy side. Yeah. Um, everyone at Move On is a dual employee of both entities, and we each each week you know record how much time we spend on each side. Um, what that means is that if there's a threat to you know democracy or progressive values coming down the pike or an opportunity to to move the ball forward, um, it's my job to find out about it. And you know either myself or my team, we have a, a team here in the Washington office uh, to to be in touch with the folks that are proposing great new legislation or uh, who know that a horrible bill is about to drop, who, who have a sense that you know, there might be something rumbling in the White House that the progressive movement needs to respond to, and then to alert our colleagues across the country and figure out what our members can do to fight back. And at its core, move on as a service to our members around the country, giving them kind of strategic insight and specific things that they can do to affect the issues that they care about. And sometimes that means, you know, getting like electing people or defeating bad people in office. And very often, especially between elections, that means pressuring their elected officials to do the right thing, to oppose a bill or co-sponsor something, to sign on to a letter, um, you know, to, to show up for protests, to show that the public is, is against something. And a lot of the key to, to making that work is moving fast. So to give one example, uh, the day that, Comey was fired. We organized a protest outside the White House with several hundred people mm. and started, you know, organize, we started pushing around the country to ask members of Congress to support an independent prosecutor. And the, the kind of like rising tide of that pressure and the sort of optics of, a, of an outraged public helped create a situation, we think, where, where Rod Rosenstein appointed Mueller as special prosecutor. And right. before that, we had a similar push uh, after Jeff Sessions' interactions with Russians was revealed that helped lead to his recusal. And that's something that it's it's kind of an inside-outside game of being tuned into the pulse enough to know what's going on, but also having an army of people that want to fight, you know, who want to get involved, um, that you can alert to those opportunities. Yeah, and so mobilization obviously is key. And, you know, speaking uh, of, of that, um, I, I got a ton of questions from listeners when they found out that I was going to be talking with you. And uh, you know, just the v- amount of questions, the variety of questions, I think is very indicative, uh, not just of how motivated uh, indivisible members are, my listeners, but also how much is coming at us on a daily basis from the GOP and the Trump administration. But, you know, specific yep. to mobilization, I think the most prevalent question that I got uh, is about MoveOn's contingency plan for people to take to the streets uh, if and when Special Prosecutor Robert Mueller is fired. And so I I will ask you one that has come up that I'm intrigued by, and that is, is there a a plan in your mind after people take to the streets? How long do you envision people being out there? What what is the ultimate strategy in your mind? That's a, a great and really important question. And I should start by saying for folks that don't already know, uh, there's a coalition of several dozen groups, including Move On, Indivisible, Public Citizen, Stand Up America, and, and a bunch of others, that have come together around a plan and a website called TrumpIsNotAboveTheLaw.org, mm-hmm. um, where people can RSVP. There are now 200,000 people who've pre-RSVP'd for flash protests in the event that Mueller's fired or there's a similar Saturday Night Massacre. So step one is flood the streets, make absolutely clear that this is a constitutional crisis that Congress needs to act. Um, The next day is the question that you're asking. And Mm -hmm. there's a couple of major options and which direction we go depends a little bit on the fact pattern um, that emerges from 
the initial crisis and the response to it. So one idea is to have to call for a national march on Washington three weeks later and really flood the zone to try to get a, a massive kind of wave of people to come to D.C. Uh, the other direction, and they're not mutually exclusive, is to run a kind of an escalating series of actions focused on congressional targets. Because if it's a situation where Mueller's fired and it seems like the Congress is cracking, it might be something where building pressure in congressional districts as well as Washington on Congress could lead to Congress passing a special prosecutor law and rehiring Mueller uh, as a special prosecutor. And you're talking about targeting specific members of Congress then, who you think might be vulnerable to that kind of pressure. Well, you probably want to do it everywhere, um, but especially specific ones. I mean, to get something through Congress with a veto-proof majority means it needs to feel like it is a political must-do. It needs to, you know, one antecedent is the SOPA and PIPA protests uh, in was 2011 and 2012, uh, when there was this internet blacklist bill that was supposed to fly through Congress. And then there was this gigantic uprising, and suddenly everyone in Congress was against it, and it died. And that was a moment when everyone in Congress kind of felt the hurricane force winds blowing and was like, oh my God, I got to get on board. Right. So if there's a, if it feels like we're on moving in the direction where that could work, then we want to do that. If it's, if there's a sense that the right is like totally entrenching, then it actually might be that Washington makes more sense rather than than Congress as a target, because it might be that people doing the right thing in the rest of the justice department is necessary. Or it might be that we're trying to like signal to the courts that they need to move in. And, well, yeah. You know, and you, like, you talked earlier about a veto proof majority. And as we recently saw uh, when Congress voted overwhelmingly with a veto proof majority to approve Russian sanctions and the White House is disregarding that, 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 yeah, you may need to go around Congress in a situation like this, right? Exactly. Exactly. And that's, I mean, in a, in a real constitutional crisis, you'll wind up with a situation where the White House, like White House is now openly defying Congress and where it openly defies a court order in addition. And, you know, ultimately it's, it can get pretty dark pretty fast. Mm -hmm. um, but if, if there's a kind of open defiance of a series of court orders, then that might then sort of ricochet back to Congress to do something more significant. And ultimately like Congress's power over the executive branch in a formal sense comes through the power of the purse. Mm -hmm. And, it happens that we're still in a situation with uh, short-term funding bills. And so there's a sense in which, like, actually, Congress has a particular ability right now to, to shut off the tap and, and throw the... And have know, some leverage, the, basically. And have some leverage over the executive branch. Mm -hmm. Now, this is all pretty far afield because it presupposes a situation where Congress is, like, actually willing to frontally take on the White House. And, it, and the White, you know, the conservative movement's strategy right now is to just aggressively discredit the people investigating them and discredit law enforcement. So, you know, it could be that Congress basically doesn't budge. I mean, the, the thing I'm, as much as I don't like envisioning a kind of constitutional chaos moment like this, it's also possible that Mueller could be fired uh, there could be a series of press releases from Republicans in Congress, you know, a roar of protests in the streets, and then they do nothing. And if that happens, then actually, you know, getting everyone in the country registered to vote over the next few weeks might be the, the most significant thing. Um, mm. It might be that there's no channel for accountability until the next election. And I very much hope that's not the case. There's a lot of Republicans who've sort of, you know, said, uh, not to me, but to folks on the right who 
are talking to them about this, that if there is a real crisis, then they will be there. They just don't think that that's really going to happen. Uh, you know, there have been very few profiles in courage. Even the, <laughs> even the retiring Jeff Flakes and Bob Corkers of the world have not moved past uh, giving speeches and writing books. Right. So, and I think a lot of us wish that maybe they would. Uh, <laughs> they kind of put their money yeah. where their their mouths and their and their words are. Um, just to clarify, just a couple points about the mobilization. Uh, does MoveOn have a plan for if Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein is fired, which is looking more and more like that's Trump's intention? Is there is there a specific plan for that? So it's interesting. I mean, I, there will certainly be some kinds of you know, protest and, and calling Congress and stuff that that happens. The question of whether that triggers the full-scale flood the streets is uh, the the plan right now is to have the coordinating groups basically convene and just take stock of where what the intensity level is among their memberships. Because the thing you don't want to do is call for a day of mass protests and then have very few people show up. And so my guess is that the the Mueller firing plan would just be executed exactly the same way in a Rod Rosenstein firing situation. But if there's some kind of extenuating circumstance that we can't envision where actually there wouldn't be that level of intensity in the streets, then you want to use the tactic that is going to have the highest impact at the moment. So it's a it's a game time decision about whether to kind of smash the glass and, and do the whole thing or whether it's like a more you know, targeted and localized effort right away that then builds towards something bigger. And I imagine that this is something that you will transmit to uh, move on followers, uh, possibly th- through Trump is not above the law dot org or elsewhere. Yes, that's right. And it'll I mean, look, if, if when a moment like this comes, which <laughs> feels awfully proximate right now, <laughs> uh, yeah. part of the plan is to make sure that the response is inescapable to anyone who's an active Twitter user on an email list of any progressive group gets text messages from any progressive group. Like, you know, we'll certainly be trying to spread the alarm through our friends in podcast world, like, like yourself and Pod Save America and all those kinds of things. Like it'll be an all, all hands on deck, all points bulletin type situation. And while we're not, uh, rogue Hawaiian missile alert administrators, uh, <laughs> I, I do think collectively we have the ability to sound the alarm pretty effectively. Yeah, well, I, I for one, would like to know, uh, you know, before I actually sound an alarm like that, whether it's actually a drill or not. So, you know, that's <laughs> yes. that's just me personally. Uh, yep. So yeah, I want to get your take on something you've been tweeting uh, about, and this relates to, to kind of what we're talking about um, very directly, and that is, is the, the, the Nunes memo, and you call it uh, hashtag Nunes hoax on Twitter. There's a lot of churn around this right now, and I should mention that we are recording on February first Thursday, um, and a lot could change between now and airtime. But uh, this memo alleges that the FBI abused the uh, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, when it uh, apparently used opposition research on Trump and Russia as part of its investigation. Um, Wednesday night, Democratic chair of the Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff, exposed edits to the document made by Nunes after the committee voted to expose whether uh, or not to uh, let the public know about it. And Nunes has since admitted making those edits, uh, calling them, quote, minor edits. You've been tweeting a lot about this. What is your take right now on this story as it's evolving? It's it's really dangerous. Um, The the danger, there's there's a kind of a a little hack that Nunes and his friends in the kind of Fox News disinformation machine have concocted here, which is to put out a you know, profoundly misleading piece of propaganda based on intelligence that those who could discredit the propaganda can't release 
because of their national security concerns about doing so. Right. And so it's very, very hard to directly debunk without incurring other costs that at the moment the folks, you know, on that side of the, the, the coin don't feel ready to incur. My guess is there will be an attempt to discredit it, a bunch of attempts to discredit it. Um, regardless of how well discredited it is, I think it'll become gospel on the right very quickly. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like it's you know written in an incendiary way, and I think it'll increase both the demand for Mueller to be fired and the uh, cover for, for firing him. That's a pretty ugly tactic. Sure. Um, well, you know, and that actually gets to kind of your uh, what you're pointing to is is a larger problem here, and ultimately, and that is uh, the propagation of misinformation. Um, this is always a moving target with this uh, administration, and ultimately with this GOP Congress. And I'm wondering, as an activist, how you think we in the progressive community best deal with and combat disinformation. So one thing that I think is important to resist is the temptation to fight dirty with dirty in this kind of way. Yeah. And I don't think that our side is falling into that trap, which I think is great. Um, I think, you know, what, one interesting thing that's sort of been brought to light by this whole battle, there are, you know, many uh, people across the political spectrum, but certainly many progressives who've been rightly very critical of the FBI and intelligence community and, you know, and, and some folks in, in law enforcement throughout decades because there have been all kinds of terrible abuses and politicizations and all kinds of terrible things. I think one thing that's emerged from this fight is that there's also like a big professionalized core of people that are actually trying to do their jobs and, and uphold their oaths to the Constitution. And protecting that is like really precious to the functioning of our like democratic republic. Absolutely. That's it's yeah. a necessary thing. And I, you know, one of the kind of kinetic dynamics in, in this whole fight is that the way that the right has attacked, you know, our national security system and everything else actually is building a stronger constituency on, in, in the general public and on the left, um, for the rule of law and for constitutional norms. That's a really healthy thing. Like it's easy to forget how small a share of the public believes in the crap that's being churned out of Fox News all the time right now. It's somewhere around uh, 30 percent or th between 30 and 40 percent. Yeah. Yeah. Which is enough to do a lot of damage. But the only reason why that 30 to 40 percent really matters right now is that they control the formal levers of power. Like I think if Dems do retake a House of Congress after this or both houses of Congress, the you, fact that you, to, to like, God's ears, my friend. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and it's, I mean, I would say <laughs> even one house is still a, a huge if there's so many things sure. that can happen between now and next year. But if Dems do regain a, a sort of a formal check on the Trump administration, then we'll actually have a situation where a big chunk, you know, most of the country uh, represented ably in, in Congress wants to like make this make systems work and, and do the right thing and get to the bottom of what happened. And that's much better than a disengaged populace. Mm. Um, and it's much better than a populace that's kind of like there's this idea on the right about Trump derangement syndrome where people are like go nuts. And, and there's some conspiracy theory mongering on our side. And, you know, there's certainly viral Twitter threads that go beyond what, you know, facts and evidence. But most people actually seem to have a fairly like earnest desire to get to the truth and even really feel like the defense of the truth is an important principle right now. And I've like, I've been outside the White House with, with protests where we're all chanting rule of law, rule of law. And there's something 
very kind of straightforward and I think encouraging about that uh, strand in the resistance movement. I think realizing that the moral high ground is actually a strong place from which to fight, um, especially when you've got the majority with you, is good. And being, I think one of the other aspects of this is that a lot of times for progressives, we underfocus on process um, and we tend to just go straight to the substantive you know, policies that we want. And I think now there's a growing awareness of the right's obsessive focus on gaming the system of, of changing and breaking the rules. And so there's a bigger focus on how do you actually like solidify and entrench those rules? How do you do nonpartisan redistricting? Like, you know, things like that, mm -hmm. that I think will be a bigger part of the agenda once Democrats regain power. And I think that's also very good because it's, if, if our side is always focused on how do we get healthcare to more people and their side is always focused on how do we prevent Democrats from ever getting power, like, yes, we'll extend healthcare to more people when we have power, but we'll never get it. We have to twin our focus on the substantive work that actually changes people's lives with a focus on the procedural fights that uh, define who has that power in the first place. Well, and in terms of motivation, I, I think you're actually painting a rather hopeful picture. Um, and I always try to net out in, in a hopeful vein on this show whenever possible. Um, just a couple other quick questions that have come up from listeners, and I'll let you go. Uh, one issue that is front and center right now is immigration, of course, uh, specifically the fight of the, over the Dreamers. What is Move On recommending here, specifically in the lead up uh, to the next continuing resolution vote on February 8th? It's a pretty grim picture right now. Um, the the conservative strategy um, is to use the fact that the public and Democrats specifically care about dreamers as you know a, a bargaining chip, a lever to try to get them to turn on uh, immigrants more broadly. And I think our side's job is to not take the bait and be willing to say no to a bad deal. Um, the The fact is that Republicans will be in danger if they you know, get to, to March or past March, uh, especially if the court order staying the end of DACA is, is lifted and the Trump administration starts, you know, active, like more actively deporting and, and rounding up dreamers, that creates a huge political risk for Republicans that they actually don't want to face. And well, the sense Ch that Chuck I have Schumer is, said as much uh, in, in several interviews that he said the optics of that would just be uh, devastating for the Republicans. And it's a very cynical way to look at it, but it is true. Yeah. And the dreamers, you know, we've, we've worked very closely with United We Dream at Move On. Like the kind of organized dreamer community does not, is not willing to trade their own safety for the removal of their parents or for, you know, the slamming, slamming the door to siblings and, and spouses mm -hmm. and, and children for, for other immigrants. The, the goal right now is to move from a kind of position of supplication where we're begging Republicans to give us a a scrap in, in exchange for, uh, you know, really morally hideous prices and move into a position of power where we're saying like, look, you're, you're on the wrong side of this. You're going to pay a political price for it and you're going to need to come to us and be willing to, to make a deal that's, that's broadly acceptable. And that right now that means stepping back from the kind of dancing on the quicksand of the, of the negotiations that they've set up, which are really ultimately dominated by this kind of Stephen Miller, um, Senator Cotton faction. Um, and, uh, you know, say no to false choices, take, take a page from Joe Kennedy's speech, um, and then make the moral case for why we need to do the right thing so that ultimately they, they feel like they're in a political corner rather than putting us in one. You know, this all kind of gets to a philosophical question about what Move On does. And this goes back to where we began our discussion about the two pillars uh, and – 
one of the questions that I that I got uh, more than once from people was how best, and these are from indivisible uh, leaders of groups, how best to move people from online activism, which is, for want of a better word, easier, to mm-hmm. boots on the ground efforts to get out the vote, um, where it really, really matters. How best do you like make that transition in your mind for people? So at Move On, we've been doing this for almost, I guess it'll be 20 years this year. And we keep on trying different stuff. What we consistently find is that making things pleasurable makes them happen. Mm. Um, things that feel like work, you know, happen less. And so to give one example, if you want people to make calls to voters uh, in target states, you often can do that better by having a party where people get together and everyone pulls out their cell phone and finds a quiet corner and makes calls and then they can pause and eat pizza together and, you know, hang out. Right. That, that often works better than making it more convenient for people to just do it solo from home. Like we often have both programs going, but we put a bigger emphasis into our, uh, into our parties because people actually stick with it for you know a couple of hours and enjoy it, want to do it again when they have the social you know positive experience doing it. Uh, that's, you know, broadly speaking, I think trying to like figure out what are the obstacles to people doing this stuff? Why is it that people put off doing something that they know they sort of ought to, ought to do? And how do you change it from an ought to, to a want to, um, that's, that's the key. And often that's something where, you know, leadership, and I think the leadership of indivisible, uh, group leads can really make a big difference. And sometimes it's as simple as finding a really good cookie recipe, you know, or, or finding an interesting place to congregate. Or making sure you open the meetings with a time to go around and people to share their feelings and get the kind of like positive energy that comes from doing something meaningful in a in a team. Uh, but if it just feels like an obligation or a duty, uh, people tend to you know tend to lose their juice after a while. And mm-hmm. this is a, a marathon where we we really need to. Well, a marathon's a good example. Good marathons have these have the people every mile or so standing there with orange slices and you know, goo Gatorade energy packs and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah. So make sure you have those kind of like resupply stations along the way if you want people to go the distance. It's actually a really great metaphor. I, I have run a marathon before, and I remember thinking, like, okay, if I can just make it another mile, I can get to that next station. <laughs> so, yeah, no, that's that's perfect. So, um, you know, I just, I kind of, like I said, I, I always do kind of want to net out on hope wherever possible. Um. Are you feeling hopeful? As I think a lot of people have said, it's probably not in the best interest of all of us to put all of our efforts into the Mueller investigation going the way that we want it to, which is ultimately, you know, the the impeachment of Donald Trump. It just seems very politically implausible right now. But the 2018 elections seem much more within our grasp. What are your thoughts there? Are you hopeful going into November? So one, one thing that I've been trying to do as a discipline since last November is constantly depress my expectations and think more about <laughs> worst case scenarios than I am about best case scenarios. Okay. Um, with that said, well, not with that said, in that frame of mind, um, it's absolutely the right thing to focus on 2018. And 20, like 2018 is, is the most important, the, the, the election this year is the most important lever we have to pull to save our democracy and to you know protect the communities that are under attack and avert the kind of real like historic catastrophes that could very well happen under Trump. Yeah. Um, I, I would argue, you know, some 
mix of them is likely to happen under Trump. Uh, but unless we have a, a mechanism for accountability, you know, it's really just a roll of the dice. And so for that, that's that's the reason why move on's overriding focus this year is taking back the House. It's also like wherever you are, there's likely some races that are really important. Taking back state legislatures is just cr- critical to the long term rebuilding process, um, especially around redistricting. Uh, and then if you're in a place that has a, a key Senate race, I mean, the the idea of actually winning back the Senate and not having Trump get to pick the next Supreme Court nominee necessarily or having to have someone who's acceptable to a Democratic majority really, really would be transformative. Mm-hmm. So I'm – I mean the big thing that I'm hopeful about and I'm sure like anyone who's listening to this has some level of alignment on this is is the level of civic engagement that's just exploded since Trump was elected. And that – you know, it really dwarfs what happened on the right after Obama was elected, and it's it's the only fuel that really has the potential to to shift things back and and create something hopeful coming out of this this mess that we're in. The goal is has to be to go not only to to stop Trump, but to get to a point where a Trumpian victory would be impossible, where the country has so decisively rejected the the politics of of hate and division and and plutocracy that. You know, we're we've Trump proofed the country and are actually building something that works for everyone. And the first and most important ingredient is now there, which is a populace that that wants to do it. So for me, that that's the note of hope. And even even given all the things that could go wrong between now and November, um, you know, putting down your your news alert vibrating phone and going out and knocking on some doors is the best way to get there. And I think that is the way that Move On and Indivisible are both really leading the way there. So, um, yeah, good. Okay, so then we did it. We, we wound up on a hopeful note. Well, Ben Wickler, I want to say thank you so much for joining us on the show, and thank you for all the work that you're doing, man. Thank you. I really appreciate it, and uh, thanks for uh, your working and keeping folks engaged. Thanks so much to all the Indivisible leaders. You're really um, – just one of the the greatest resources and and forces for good that this country has seen in a long time. So I'm grateful for everyone who's listening right now. So if you are like me, you may have been confused when you received a ballot in the mail regarding levies and or bonds for school districts and then reading or hearing about the tax increase that property owners will receive this month, uh, up by an average of 17 percent in King County, and that'll go towards state schools. So to help us make sense of these two issues, and uh, as it turns out, they're basically separate, uh, we have invited Summer Stinson back to the program. Summer is the co-founder and the president of of the education nonprofit organization Washington's Paramount Duty, an organization devoted to making sure that state schools are adequately funded. Hello, Summer. Hello. So I want to start with the ballot initiatives. Uh, I live in the Issaquah School District, so our school board proposition is a levy, but other municipalities have propositions with a levy and a bond. Uh, The shorthand is that levies are for learning and bonds are for building. That's a nice mnemonic device. Thank you, Aaron Albanese, for that. Uh, But to be clear, these ballot propositions are not directly related to the state legislature's move to raise property taxes for schools, or are they? Clear that up for us. Well, the state should be paying um, the full amount to amply fund public schools um, to give every child a basic education. Unfortunately, that bar is set too low. Um, That bar actually doesn't necessarily cover art classes, um, sports, music, uh, 
nurses in every school, like full-time librarians are not covered under it. So there's a lot of things that a um, local school district wants to provide, and that's called enrichment, which is then um, the the school district is allowed to ask for that, those enrichment or those buildings through either levies or bonds. However, because the state is not fully paying for basic education, especially special education, that's a glaring example, some of these levies will still have to be used even with um, the state superintendent's approval, still have to be used for some basic education costs, such as special education. Wow. Okay. So it it strikes me as odd that some of the things that you listed, especially uh, special education, are considered supplemental, but I suppose that's a topic for a completely different show. Uh, So let's talk about the property tax increase that is coming from the state legislature directly. Uh, This is the result of the McCleary decision, and that is something that you and I discussed on a previous show in which the state Supreme Court ruled uh, Washington State to be out of compliance with their obligation to fund public schools to the tune of about a billion dollars, and the legislature is currently being fined $100,000 each day of 2018 until they fully fund the schools. They have opted to do this through a sizable property tax increase. You are a single mom and a homeowner, and uh, I understand that you're actually going to get hit pretty hard by this tax bill. Yes, I'm anticipating that it will be about $850, maybe $900 or even more. I Honestly, I haven't even looked at the number yet. I'm mm. a little scared. Yeah. Um, I know, I know that my uh, escrow account will need to be paid up much more, and will soon find out my number and need to make arrangements to pay that. You know, one of the ways that this tax bill has proven to be controversial is the discrepancy in the way in which this tax is being levied, particularly between areas that tend to vote Democratic, which are getting a pretty sizable increase, and other rural areas, which tend to vote Republican, some of which are actually getting a tax break under this. Given the new balance of power in Olympia, any idea why this is happening under the Democrats? Well, this was really required by the Republicans. It was the Republican tax plan of last year when the Senate was controlled by Republicans and the okay. House was controlled by Democrats. So there's a legacy to this. Yes. Okay, got and it. this was voted in on the very last day possible or the second to the last day possible last year. Um, and I think we were in our fourth special session or something like <laughs> fourth, fourth session um, for the legislature. Yeah. And so this was the compromise. And it, it was a compromise that honestly – my group has been warning against since 2015. Because yes, some people will pay more so that every child can receive an amply funded education. However, the the people that will pay more, it's not, it really shouldn't be based on a house that you have or land that you have, but really on the income or wealth that an individual has. We have such a regressive and upside down tax structure in Washington state where the poorest among us are paying seven times the percentage that the most wealthy are paying um, in tax, in a tax rate, basically. Well, so let's talk about some of the solutions that you have proposed that would be a more progressive tax structure. One of the things that you've talked about possibly lobbying for is uh, an increase in corporate taxes, right? 
Yes. And actually what it would be is we have 700 tax breaks, over 700 tax breaks here in the state of Washington. So even just dialing those back, turning down the volume on our tax breaks, which equals $30 billion a year here in our state, more than any other state has, more than other than New York. If we just dial those back, then we could collect more revenue from our corporations who are not paying their fair share. Some corporations pay basically a very minimal tax rate in our state. And yet these are the same corporations that are demanding better workers, more educated public so that they can hire from Washington residents Mm -hmm. for their corporations. And yet they are not being good citizens and investing in these very services that they need. And of course, you can hear the pro-business argument coming that if you cut business tax breaks, you may potentially drive those businesses and the jobs out of state. Well, I would respond with uh, California, specifically Silicon Valley, hmm. which does have both an income tax and um, and property taxes and uh, sales tax and corporate taxation and a millionaire's tax and Silicon Valley still seems to be booming you know, pretty well right now. Want to do business there, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the other things that you and your group have talked about, which would also be a progressive tax plan, would be a capital gains tax. So, talk about how that would work in your mind. So, a capital gains tax, uh, and it sounds complicated. It's it's not as complicated as it sounds. But well, it's basically if somebody is an investor, they uh, can take profits from the uh, the money that they may have made from an investment, and then you take taxation off of the profits, right? And it's only on very high level of profits. And it would not include profits from, say, the sale sale of your home or the sale of anything to do with retirement funds or uh, a family farm or livestock. There's a lot of exemptions for many people in many circumstances. But for those who have enough wealth that they are often um, heavily invested in the stock market, anything beyond 25000 of actual gains in a year when you sell for an individual or 50000 for a couple then would be taxed. And then that money would go back into the state of Washington so that we could help pay for services. Okay. So it's my understanding that this current taxation plan, uh, the property taxation plan, is going to be on the books through 2021, but that's not set in stone. So do you have any understanding that there are counter taxation plans that might follow along the lines of like a corporate tax or a a capital gains tax currently being discussed in the state legislature? Yes, there is actually a public hearing on the cap- a capital gains tax proposal with a reduction then in the property tax before the House Finance Committee on Friday, February 16th. And they okay. will be taking public testimony and a pre- having a presentation on a capital gains tax in Washington and um, the possible resulting lowering of the property tax and um, raising the uh, amount of exemption given, especially for seniors, um, for property taxes. And I would imagine that even if you can't make it there for that public hearing, that uh, you can pick up the phone and call your legislator and let him or her know how you feel about this. 
Absolutely. And for Washington's paramount duty, we are strongly in favor of a capital gains tax. We would prefer and are going to advocate that the rate be high enough that it includes some new money to put into education. Because as you started off the show by talking about the $1 billion that the Supreme Court has said still needs to be put into education, um, this could help pay for some of that, as well as pay for some reduction of property taxes. Well, something supplemental is going to have to happen because it is my understanding that even with this current property tax increase, school funding is still going to be a billion dollars short, which is sort of ironic given the fact that uh, one would think that puts it out of compliance with McCleary. Uh, but but here we are. So anyway, we'll, yes. I'd love to check back in with you on this as this develops. So will you come back and talk with us? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so much, Summer. And we will end with our weekly dose of good news. You know, I I don't always want to say, well, after the week we had, we need it, but uh, it continues to be true. So anyway, uh, amid the undermining of the FBI and nonsense memos and far-right conspiracies and a planned Soviet-style military parade down Pennsylvania Avenue, we do have some bright spots to report. We will start with the retirement of South Carolina Representative Trey Gowdy. Yep. Mr. Benghazi himself is hanging it up, but uh, not, I should add, before he curiously said that the Nunes memo should have no impact on the Russia probe. Hmm. In any case, Gowdy, along with two other Republicans, Patrick Meehan of Pennsylvania and New Jersey's Rodney Frelinghuysen, will join 34 GOP members of Congress who will not be seeking re-election this fall. I am not jinxing anything by simply noting that this number doubles the number of Democrats who retired in 2010, and I think we all remember what happened in the fall of that year. So just saying. Also, speaking of positive numbers, Democrat Mike Rebus won a House seat by three points in a special election in Missouri in a district that had gone for Trump by 28 points, meaning that in one year, this district swung 31 points for the Democrats. And this marks the 35th seat that has changed from red to blue since Trump's election. Let's just keep that momentum going, shall we? Yes, we shall, because in another special state House election in Pennsylvania, Austin Davis became the first African-American ever to win in his district. And finally, and I was pleasantly surprised by this, Trump appointee to head the CDC, Brenda Fitzgerald, has resigned when it was revealed that she had invested in tobacco stocks. (laughs) Who knew that was a red line with this administration? Collude with a hostile foreign power to subvert our electoral process, fine, but uh, you better not have any shares of Philip Morris while you do it. In any case, she is gone, and that is it for this week's Dose of Good News. And that'll also do it for this week's show. As always, for more information about this show, head over to indivisiblepodcast.org, and you can subscribe there, if you have not yet, to get the show delivered to your inbox. Please keep the correspondences and the emails and tweets coming. The email is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and the Twitter handle is indivisiblepod. And a special shout-out to our listeners in Japan and Australia. Hit us up, guys. I would love to hear from you. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of 
of Get Creative, Inc. The executive producer is Aaron Albanese. Thanks again to my guests, Ben Wickler and Summer Stinson. My special thank you to Mark Hertz, Brett Abrams, and Reggie Hubbard. Be sure to join us for this Friday's Week in Review. We will be joined by Seattle Taking Action's Sharmila Ajmera and The Strangers' Heidi Groover. Thank you guys always so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye.